time marks 20 years since the end of the Rwandan genocide. In the summer of 1994, the death of the country's president, Juvenal Habyarimana, sparked brutal violence between the country's two major ethnic groups. The genocide took place over 100 days, but left an estimated 1 million people dead. Two decades on, I've come to Manchester to speak to Richard Bender, a Rwandan academic and genocide survivor. In a series of programmes, he'll be discussing the process of reconciliation, the country's charismatic leader, as well as his own memories of the genocide. He began by explaining the role of religion in Rwanda's healing process. After, after the genocide, there, was, there were debates as to which faith community um, handled the genocide better. I get some people saying that Muslims uh, behaved more rightly than Christians in the genocide. I find that the difference between Muslims and Christians, I think, is that Muslims reacted as a group, whereas Christians reacted as individuals. But after the genocide, I think both groups were interested in developing a reconciliation framework which takes faith seriously or which accepts that faith has a capital which can contribute greatly to reconciliation and um, so they came together I think the initiative was chaired by the Mufti of Rwanda and, and the Archbishop or the, the, the Rwandan Archbishop Emmanuel Corini at the time um, and the idea really was to provide a platform where faith can contribute to building the country of the genocide because deep down I think they recognize that they did little before the genocide and during the genocide, not as much as was expected anyway. So it, it, the interfaith program is still going on. Um, it started with work in prison, working with prisoners or people had been convicted of genocide, suppose getting them ready to face their moral responsibility, confess. I think the emphasis was on recon um, uh, repentance, confession, and then I suppose facing uh, criminal responsibility with a, a clear conscience as much as possible. So is it as much or well, the religious involvement focused on them almost forgiving themselves as well as? Yes, and I think it is very important because uh, theologically, I think that's a, a, another understanding of justice. Uh, when you deal with people who have been involved in acts of violence or acts of evil or sin, as, as you would have it in, in a religious language, you, A, want them to face their responsibility, but first and foremost, you really want them to rediscover themselves as humans and the path to doing that is accepting themselves as still very much God's children because I suppose for Christians, Christians believe that God's grace is, is already there uh, and God forgives. The, the problem is knowing if people can forgive themselves. So yeah, you're right, it is getting them to accept their own selves and forgive themselves and I suppose then take steps to uh, ask forgiveness, to be forgiven by others. But the first step must be the inner person, because if, if they are not reconciled with themselves, then it becomes very difficult to, 
to be reconciled with others. Yeah. And, and, and it is, it's not just, it, it's, not, it's not as if the people involved in interfaith came to, to the perpetrators first. I think some perpetrators longed for that experience, that cleansing almost. Because, some kind of spiritual yeah, guidance. Yeah. And so it is a pastoral, it's, it's almost a pastor. it's a kind of pastoral care um, exercise, but also, I suppose, really a political exercise to a great extent. So, How do you mean a political exercise? Because um, you do not preach or you do not help them to find their way back just in church, but you also want to, them to become better citizens so to reintegrate the wider political community because after prison they will have to go and live back in their villages in their towns and you can't just cater for their souls you have to say well deep down you will have to go and meet people participate in community activities um, vote uh, so Yes, uh, I think I think there is a political aspect, and political in the sense that the government as well encouraged that pastoral care, you know, supported it, uh, gave access to prisoners. So there is kind of a mutuality you know, between religious leaders helping uh, the state, and vice versa, the state obviously uh, facilitating access to to the prisoners. Um, just could you explain kind of what the religious demographics are like in Rwanda, in terms of which is the most statistics. Dominant? Statistics are very treacherous in 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 the context of Rwanda, but Christianity is far 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 dominant in in the country. I think there were discourses after the genocide saying that because Muslims seem to have. Um, given a good account of themselves in the, in the mass, during the massacres that Islam grew phenomenally after the genocide, that people in droves were converting to Islam. Now that was just, it was pretty much mediatic sensationalism. From what I gather, Christianity still represents 95%, and Islam is uh, somewhere for 4.5 percent, and I think Islam grew slightly after the genocide. But from what uh, I read, what the Mufti of Rwanda said in 2000, growth in Islam uh, stabilized in 2002, and so it's still up, up 4.5 percent. And I can't I can't tell between Catholics and Protestants. I strongly suspect that uh, Protestantism grew after the genocide, so I would probably hazard a 45-55% uh, divide, so Protestants being around 45, Catholics being around 55%. Right. Yeah, yeah I because of the Belgian influence and the French influence Yes. the Catholicism. Yeah, and, and Catholicism had, had been kind of very dominant uh, from the beginning of the 20th century up until probably 1990. In 1990, 1991, uh, with kind of movements of revival within the Pentecostal church, uh, the 
I think more and more people began to leave the Catholic Church to, to convert to, to Protestantism. In fact, they converted to, to Pentecostalism in the same period. And I think quite a few people did the same thing. And I think after the genocide, quite a few a new independent churches were um, set up, and most of them were predominantly uh, Protestant. But still, yeah, the, the Belgian and French influence was there from the beginning, from the White Fathers and from uh, the Belgian colonial administration, I suppose, yeah. Um, and what kind of status does the Christian Church uh, enjoy in Rwanda? I mean, particularly the Catholic Church came in for a lot of criticism yeah. in, for its action or lack of actions in 1994, ranging from inaction to complicit mm -hmm. violence. How, yeah. is that, how is it now viewed? There, I think there are three ways of looking at the Catholic Church situation in Rwanda. From the outside, it is, it is viewed uh, as a, an institution which has been compromised for quite some time it, it, because of its, the history and the interaction with the, the state. I, I genuinely think that it took a, a serious battering in the genocide and after the genocide. I think it is a very bruised church after the genocide, but there is more introspection going on than probably um, transpires in public uh, media. I still think that they need, the Catholic Church needs to, to come out and make, I don't know, a public assessment of what really happened in 1994 and how the church is, is, is carrying on after 1994. But uh, even, even after the tragedy, the churches are still full. You know, it, it, even it, those who, those churches that were destroyed, most of them have been rebuilt. And uh, congregations are still as vibrant uh, as they were. I don't know if it's a good thing. I don't know if it's a bad thing. In my work, I, I reflect that that kind of seamless continuity, in my opinion, is very dangerous because it is as if nothing happened. Nothing happened. And that, as Walter Benjamin said, that is pro the proper tragedy, that everything continues as nothing has happened. For me, that is... That is dangerous. The head of the Catholic Church in Rwanda, so came up after the genocide and said, "Well, you can't put responsibility on the church in general. You have to blame individuals." But I think there is certainly a case for institutional responsibility, and I suppose there is certainly collective responsibility from the church if you, you look at it from the perspective of the leadership. But also if you look at it from the perspective of the common people who are seriously involved in, in the killings, you can't just say, well, we, we switched off for three months and then we, we you know, we, after three months we put on our church mantle once again. It just doesn't work. Could you talk about the state of kind of re reconciliation in wider society? Has the Rwandan state and the Rwandan people and come to terms with what happened 20 years ago? Um, reconciliation as a whole, I think it, I think really we should be happy, we should be really pleased 
with what uh, has taken place. I have been very critical of the process of reconciliation in some instances, uh, and it, it, sometimes it transpires through my work because I felt that in the beginning it was very much state monitored and state inspired. You felt like we were dealing with the state soteriology almost as if the state was saying, we create conditions and we create the rules of reconciliation and you have to, to follow them. So the first, one of the earliest institution obviously was the, um, the Commission for Unity and Reconciliation. Um, which I suppose was already a, a kind of political body, but it had the ambition of bringing, uh, at least of setting out the agenda for reconciliation. And then obviously with the, with the laws on, 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 on the genocide, uh, it was another path to reach reconciliation through justice, because I think those two have got, uh, must go hand in hand. Uh, obviously there, you know, there is so much that law can achieve and justice can can go a long way, but it, it is not enough for reconciliation. I think if we take reconciliation in its absolute value, then I think for all the criticism, Gachacha was very important uh, because Gachacha brought the common people and the, the population at the center of the debate on justice, on reconciliation, and people faced almost their demons and one another or on a platform where they understood one another. Now, it wasn't perfect, and, and it couldn't be perfect because of uh, understandable circumstances. But I think it really helped to go at the heart of truth in many cases. And it opened the door for individuals to be able to speak to people they might have offended. So, and I think then after, after the church, really, um, it, it is an ongoing process which is reflected on new initiatives like uh, the Youth Connect Dialogue, which is again a dialogue between yeah, people who are very young in a genocide, who cannot be held responsible for what happened in the genocide, but still leave the consequences of the genocide on either side. And they, they, you know, under the auspices of Art for Peace, they have been meeting young people throughout the country to debate what it is like to take on the responsibility of your parents and what it is like to take on the suffering and the pain of, of your, your parents and to try to find a way forward for this young generation. And out of, of Youth Connect Dialogue came the new program of Ndumunyarugwanda, which is really trying to create a national identity based on Rwandanness um, instead of ethnic solidarities. So I think we, we've come a long way, and I think there is still a long way to go, but I, it is hopeful. It is hopeful that, you know, I'm very optimistic. I'm very optimistic that if we have managed 20 years without going back to killing one another. And, and it hasn't been perfect. And, and there, we still have the cases of 
maybe uh, crimes that have been committed by the current government or the army and how they they will be dealt with within the process of reconciliation but uh, i think the balance overall is a positive one the positive one and i hope that the process of reconciliation can really be a grassroots exercise because then when you read some of some uh, works you realize that uh, communities, um, especially rural communities, sometimes felt that it was being imposed upon them. But if they own the process in the future, that's when real stories and real histories of reconciliation are really going to kind of come alive. And I'm excited because that's what I'm researching next. I'm, I'm using oral histories to talk about or to understand reconciliation, to understand justice. See people individuals involved um, in sorting out complex situations. Because I think reconciliation as a political program has to end at some point because governments can't sustain uh, such a program for indefinitely. So it will be um, decentralized and uh, individualized and particularized. And I suppose within the next 10, 15 years, I think um, more people will have found a way to deal, to deal with, uh, with uh, their, a, their conscience for the perpetrators, um, found their place if they were just witnesses and bystanders and I suppose found a bit of peace and a kind of way forward for, for the victim. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you said that Rwanda managed to survive 20 years without further violence. Is that down to the grassroots kind of reconciliation that you hope to see, or is it more down to the strength of the Rwandan state, which is kind of bound, bound the country together? More the second than the first. More the second than the first. I think. States are controversial. I'm, you, know, you need. I, I strongly suspect that we needed a strong state after the genocide to stabilize the country, to bring security. Because a, a justice, reconciliation, anything, any living together becomes impossible if there is no security whatsoever. Um, so I think we owe to the state to have created conditions of stability and security for all those initiatives to happen within a, not a safe environment, but within a controlled environment. And, but also, I think you have to give credit to Rwandan communities at, at the grassroots level because they had to put up with an awful lot for the process to succeed. I think victims and survivors had to endure coexisting with people who threatened their lives and threatened, I mean, by extermination. And I think some Hutu people as well, they had to put up an awful 
they had families in prison. Some people have families in prison, and they knew those families, those people would be innocent, and they waited to give, I suppose to give a chance to the state itself to create conditions where cases can be tried. So I think individuals paid quite a price in terms of allowing conditions you know, that can allow for a dialogue. Tutsis and Hutus have sacrificed themselves, not themselves, but aspects of their lives, or in order for society as a whole to make progress. Yes, I think when we look back, we will see that every Rwandan after the genocide had to put up with an awful lot. Both groups uh, have to be commended for for giving, yeah, for, for, for allowing the state to almost impose itself upon their lives so that we can, we can all enjoy some kind of uh, relative peace together in, 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 that, in the time of tensions, because tensions were there. But um, nobody wanted, I suppose nobody really wanted the violence to erupt again. conversations with Richard on the Pod Academy website at www.podacademy.org and stay up to date by following us on Twitter at Pod Academy. In the other two pods we discuss Rwanda's charismatic president Paul Kagame and Richard's own memories of the genocide. This has been Pod Academy, I've been Alex Bird, thanks for listening. <laughs>